This morning, uh, we are going to be looking at uh, Jeremiah chapter 13. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, Jeremiah 13. And let's uh, read the scriptures together. Or you can just follow along with me. Jeremiah chapter 13. Thus the Lord said to me, Go and buy yourself a linen waistband and put it around your waist, but do not put it in the water. So I brought the waistband in accordance with the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, Take the waistband that I, you have brought, which is around your waist, and arise, go to Euphrates, and hide there, hide it there in a crevice of the rock. So I went and hid it in the Euphrates, as the Lord had commanded me. And it came about after many days that the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the waistband which I commanded you to hide there. And I went to the Euphrates and dug took the waistband from the place where it had been hidden it, and lo, the waistband was ruined. It was totally worthless. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, Just so will I destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who walk in the stubbornness of their hearts, and have gone after other gods to serve them, to bow down to them, let them be just like this waistband, which is totally worthless. For as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole houses of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people for renown, for praise, for glory. But they did not listen. Therefore, you are to speak this word to them. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, every jug is to be filled with wine. And when you say to them, and when they say to you, do we not very well know that every jug is to be filled with wine? Then say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm about to fill all the inhabitants of this land, the kings that sit for David's, David on his throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And I will dash them each against another. Both the fathers and the sons together, declares the Lord. I will not show pity, nor be sorry, nor have compassion, that I should destroy them. Listen and give heed and do not be haughty. For the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord of your God before he brings darkness and before your feet stumble on the dusky mountains. And while you are hoping for light, he makes it into deep darkness and turns it into gloom. But if you will not listen to it, my soul will sob in secret for such, such pride. And my eyes will bitterly weep and flow down with tears because the flock of the Lord has been taken captive. Say to the king and the queen mother, Take a lowly seat, for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. The cities of Negev have been locked up, and there is no one to open them. All Judah has been carried into exile, wholly carried into exile. Lift up your eyes and see who's coming from the north. Where is the flock that was given, your beautiful sheep? What will you say when he appoints over you, and you yourselves had taught them, former companions, to be head over you? Will not the pangs take hold of you like a woman in childbirth? And if you say in your heart, why have, these, why have these things happened to me? Because of the magnitude of your iniquity. Your skirts have been removed and your heels have been exposed. Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Therefore I will scatter them like drifting straw in the desert wind. 
This is your lot, the portion measured to you from me, declares the Lord. Because you have forgotten me and trusted in falsehood, so I myself have also stripped your skirts off over your face, that your shame may be seen. As for your adulteries and your lustful names, the lewdness of your prostitution on the hills of the field, I have seen your abominations. Woe to you, O Jerusalem, how long will you remain unclean? Father, we thank you again for the book of Jeremiah, for the words spoken to us. May they minister life. May they give us hope. May they be a light to our feet, a lamp to our direction. In every way we pray in your name. Amen. I went surfing this uh, week with one of my buddies. And we went to my usual spot. And as we looked at it, I decided, ah, it's not going to work. The waves are too big or they weren't breaking right. And so I decided to go up further up the beach where there would be a better place. And as we were walking, my, my buddy, is, he's kind of cynical. He says, wow, this is kind of a special day. Pastor Neil has changed his mind and uh, gone to another spot other than the place that he always serves. And I was thinking, what's he making such a big deal about it? Am I that stuck in a rut? I guess I have. Have you seen that in yourself? How hard it is to make substantial changes? <laughs> Surface change is easy, piece of cake. But real change comes difficult, very hard. In our study, Jeremiah has been given the ministry of preaching the word, calling the people to do what? To repent, to change. To change. And that As you know, he hasn't been very successful as of late. The people are refusing to change. And in the midst of this this rather difficult chapter, he quotes a proverb. Did you see it? Verse 23, Can an Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Why does he say that? What is the implications of for this proverb when rooted and grounded in this particular chapter? What does it say to Israel? And what does it say, more important, (laughs) to you, to me? That's what our subject is. We're going to answer some questions. Oftentimes they tell us in Bible school one of the best ways to look at a passage is ask a series of questions. So we're going to ask a series of three questions. Seek to find what the application of this proverb was to them. And then to also to us. Let's take a look. First question. Why did Jeremiah say what he did? Why did he use this proverb in connection with what he had been saying here? Well, there's four reasons, I believe. The first one, there's a, you can write it down if you're taking notes. Because of the illustration of the waistband. The first reason he told this is because he used the illustration of this waistband. He was told to get a waist, a linen waistband, and wrap it around his waist. Linen what was used for the godly people. That was what their garments were made out of. Then he was to take, he was to wear it for a short period of time and then take it to the river Euphrates and bury it among the rocks. Now whether or not he went to the Euphrates, which was about 350 miles away, or he went to a, a, his hometown, Para, which was just a few miles away from where he was, and there there was a river. The word two para and two Euphrates are very close in spelling. So we're not really sure whether it was the actual Euphrates rivers or it was this river near his hometown 
in the small town of Para. But needless to say, he went there after a period of time and took the waistband out and it was totally worthless. You can imagine sitting in a stream buried in the rock. Worthless. Years ago when I would fish at the San Clemente Pier, sometimes we'd have all kinds of gear and one of the fish rags that I'd used to held the fish or wipe my hands got buried in the bucket. And maybe there was a, a pier gaff or something, some ropes were thrown on it. And then a week or two later, I'd go to the bucket to get my gear ready to go out again. And, oh, my heavens, that rag was, I'd pull it out. It was like, just, just you know what it was? You know what I could do with that rag? Take it and throw it in the garbage because it was worthless. Same idea. Same idea. Now, this illustration is talking about the idea that if uh, the Israelites had clung to the Lord, remained around his waist, like the linen waistband, they would have been, as verse 11 says, a people for renown, for praise, for glory. But they didn't. But rather, it says in verse 10, they refused to listen to my words. They walk in the stubbornness of their own hearts. And that was a picture of this waistband. And because they had done this, when they were, they were taking up this, this rag, this linen, it's worthless. And that's true also for us, as it was true for the Jews, our Jewish friends. So it's true for us. When we cling to the Lord, He can bring the best out in us. But when we walk in the stubbornness of our own heart, our lives are worthless. Okay. First reason. Second reason we find in verses 12 through 14, also 22 through 25, because of the illustration of the jugs of wine. Now he says, all the people will be used, for, uh, be filled with wine. And they're saying, oh, of course, that's what you put in jugs. You put wine. But that's not the illustration. That's what the meaning of the illustration is. He's saying, as he says in verse 13, picture of filling the jugs with wine is that all the people are drunk. Now, have you ever been a dr- around a drunk person? Well, when you're drunk, you kind of, uh, you don't kind of know what's going on. And people will say things and you don't understand them. You're bumping into each other. You kind of don't connect with reality. And he says, the people are like that. Look at verse uh, 22. They say in their heart, why do these things happen to me? You know, they can't understand why all these tragedies are happening. They don't even, they don't have a clue. Not a clue. Now, from time to time, uh, you guys will bring some sinner person, some person who's just been, you know, banging around the world for a long time. Come see Pastor Neil. He'll fix you. And I'll listen to them. And they have story after story. And then they, oftentimes I've heard the very same words that we see in verse 22. And they say, why are these things happen? Why did this happen to me? And they don't understand. They're like a drunk person. Their iniquities and the results of their sinful life have added misery upon misery upon misery. Why? Why have these things happened? So he tells this proverb because of the illustration of the jugs of wine. Third reason is 
found in verses 15 through 19 because Jeremiah is deeply saddened by Israel's pride. Look what he says, verse 15. Listen and give heed. Don't be haughty. Don't be proud. But the Lord has spoken. Verse 17. But if you will not listen to it, what is he talking about? It is the word of God. They wouldn't humble themselves. He says, my soul in secret will sob. Now, oftentimes we think, if we, as we read the book of Jeremiah, it almost seems like he's mad at the people. You know, he's just... Boom, 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 boom. No, 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 he's not mad. Here's the real heart of Jeremiah. But if they will not listen, my soul will sob. My eyes will bitterly weep. Because he hurts for his people. And the reason he told this proverb, he'll say, he'll try to do almost anything to get their attention, to show them the seriousness of that which they find themselves at, that spiritual condition. So he tells this rather difficult proverb, which we'll get into in a minute. So Jeremiah is deeply saddened by Israel's pride. Fourth reason is because Israel will be shamed be shamed in two ways. In verses 20 through 21, he says, you know, there was people who you used to combo with, you people that you used to kind of be with. They were companions. But I'm telling you, they're now going to rule you. They're going to rule you. How are you going to feel about that? When you used to be equal, but now they're going to control and rule you. That's the first way you're going to be shamed. The second way they're going to be shamed is found in verses 26 and 27. And what he does is he parallels their idolatry with sexual immorality. He does this a lot. We've seen this before. And he uses words that are kind of comboed with that idea. And he says, I'm going to shame you. And he uses the picture of them pulling their skirt over their head and exposing them in their nakedness. Wow. Why is he going to shame them? Because they were supposed to be the people of the book. They were supposed to be the worshipers of Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they had been, that was, and they were, they gave lip service to that. But in reality, what? They were worshiping Baal and the false gods of the pagan nations. And he would shame them in showing the world and history what God's people had done. They were shamed by that. Now, um, you might have been aware of it, but on the second Saturday of July, down in San Juan Capistrano, they have this thing. I can't believe people do this. Where they moon the Amtrak train. And does everybody know what mooning is? Do I have to explain it? That is so junior high. I mean, that is so bad. They even have an official website now. Where they drop their pants and moon the train. Matter of fact, I, I clicked. I was thinking about this. So I clicked on the website and they had a picture of a lady who was taking her little baby her little baby and mooning the train with her baby. I was thinking, how stupid, how silly. But they think it's fun. That's not what he's talking about here. The idea here is everybody else is clothed. 
and you're walking around naked. And everybody can see (laughs) all of your shortcomings and little foibles and fables. You're going to be shamed that way. Okay. Why did Jeremiah say what he did? Because he was trying to get a message across to them. And the, uh, the capstone of his message is found in this proverb. Okay. Now, you're saying, what proverb? Well, it's in verse 23. Now, the question is, well, what does this proverb mean? Well, let's read it. Verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin color? Can a black man become a white man? Not in the natural. Can a white man become a black man? Mm-hmm. No. Not naturally. All right. Second illustration. Can a leopard change his spots? Mm-hmm. No. No. And the answer would always be no. But then notice the second half of the proverb. He's saying, well, if you're saying yes, if that's, if that's fairly common, if that's possible, then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Boom. Wow. If you think that's possible, then okay, yeah, sure, you can do good in the light of your sinful, persistent behavior. Okay. Now, that's a pretty heavy proverb, but there's even a deeper meaning to that that if we grab a hold of can be hopefully life-changing. Here it is, and I'll repeat it twice. Here's the deeper meaning that's behind this proverb. Persistent, prideful, unrepentant sinning leads to a ruined and worthless life. Let me read that again. Persistent, prideful, unrepentant sinning leads to a ruined and worthless life. Why do I say that? Well, let me give you a couple of illustrations. Illustration of an alcoholic. He say to his friends, to himself, I can stop drinking at any time I want. I can stop any time I want. I can, I can stop any time I want. But there comes a point, and it's different with each person, when they cross the line, and then what happens? They become a hopeless drunk. Hopelessly drunk. Or an addict. A drug addict. Or any other sin that's persistent, prideful, and unrepentant. You become like that rag. You become shamed. You become like a drunk, not seeing. You can't even see the truth. 2 Timothy 3.13 says that evil men will what? Proceed from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. Hebrews 3 says what? Be careful of the what? Deceitfulness of sin. It will harden your heart. So you can't see the truth. Wow. Give you two illustrations of this. 
My next door neighbor uh, years ago, several years ago, was Jim. He's a neat guy. He was a smoker. Smoked for years. Um, one day he, he's in the hospital. His wife asked me to go visit him. He was coughing up blood. He had lung cancer. He's dying. Lung cancer. Now, Jim graduated the same year I did from high school, 1960. And I had just come home from the beach. I was kind of sunny, and so I had a nice tan. He looked at me, and he began to cry and weep. Why? He said, Neil, I've wasted my whole life over a stupid pack of cigarettes. My life is over. It's ruined. And he was weeping uncontrollably. And I prayed with him, tried to console him. But he died just a few days after I saw him. How sad. My cousin, Russell, had a son who was a drinker. They asked me to come see him at the hospital. He's in his late 30s. Got to the hospital, he was yellow because his body had stopped processing his waste. And I got him to pray the sinner's prayer in the hope that he would go to heaven. That was my hope. But he was in denial. He said, no, Neil, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be fine. (laughs) And I tried to tell him, it doesn't look real good, Russell. Then one night, a doctor came in who was unfamiliar with his case and kind of brusque and not with a real good bedside manner. She picked up his, uh, his chart off the end of his bed and looked at it. He says, oh, you're going to die really soon. And the guy suddenly, you know, was confronted because everybody had been telling him, Russell, it's real serious. But nobody had just said, you are a dead man. And he broke out in tears and wailing. Oh, no, what have I done? What have I done? I wasted my life. And he died that morning. Can we change? Persistent, prideful, unrepenting sin can and many times leads to a ruined and wasted life. Well, you're saying, well, Neil, you know, I really appreciate this wonderful message you're, encouraging message you're giving me. But let me offer some hope as we look in the New Testament. Amen? Now, for Israel, what I just said exactly happened. The city was burned. Most of the people were killed. Those who weren't killed were taken away Captive. It happened. But it doesn't happen, have to happen to us. Amen? I'm going to look at three scriptures. First one is in Romans 7, 18. Romans 7, 18. Paul is writing about his struggle with sin. Look what he says. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, 
but the doing of it, the good, is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do. Somebody said, sounds like Paul was a golfer. (laughs) But I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of this death? Now, we'd all like to think if we try real hard, if we, we try really hard, we'll be able to overcome our faults and our failures. Paul dashes that little truth on the rocks when he says, we will never be free from our struggle with sin. We will never be free from the struggle of sin. Now, um, you said, I thought this was going to be more positive, Neil. Well, there's something even worse. And the worst thing is that we have the potentiality at any moment for giving in to that and be persistent and prideful and unrepentant. The potentiality always exists in us. For a wasted and a trashed life. It does. That potentiality is always there. Always there. Even much more so for those who don't have the strength of Christ and don't have the Holy Spirit to help them. We'll never be free from our struggle with sin. Never. Not until we go to heaven. Because the sin nature abides in our flesh. And we need to lay this flesh down before we're set for it. Okay. Second um, scripture, New Testament's right, right there. We'll be freed from the condemnation and dominion of sin through Jesus. He says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free? He didn't say, what will set me free? He said, who? And the answer is, Jesus Christ. Verse 25. That's who will set us free from the condemnation and the domination of sin. How so? Look at verse 8.1. Therefore, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is there no condemnation? Because Christ took upon himself. He took our condemnation. He took our judgment. He paid the penalty so that we now are at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. We're not condemned. We're not judged. But not only is there's no condemnation, but there's no domination of sin. Look at verse 2, chapter 8. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The idea that you keep on sinning and it brings a death-like existence in your life. It brings a worthlessness to your life. We've been set free. How does that work? Because Paul says, who will set me free? How can we be free? We can be free because one, 
There's no condemnation to the dominion of sin. We now, because we have the spirit of life in Christ, can say no to sin. We don't have to sin. The potentiality is there, but we don't have to. We, we're not controlled. We're not absolutely have to do it. Before, we never even, before we knew Christ, we kind of enjoyed the sin. Now, even as Paul says in the latter half of chapter 7, he struggles with it. Not that we'll be sinless, but we don't have to. We don't have to sin. Okay. Neil, you're saying um, we'll never be free from this struggle with sin, yes, but we can be freed from the condemnation and the domination of sin through Jesus. Well, how does, this, how does this kind of work out in practicality, in everyday life? Well, that's my last scripture. 1 John chapter 5. Many of us are... 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. Excuse me. 1 John 1, 5. We will be required to walk in the light. What does that mean? Well, let's read it. 1 John 1, 5. And this is the message we've heard from him. We announce to you all that God is light and in him there is no darkness. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's persistent, prideful, unrepentant sinning is walking in darkness. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. What does it mean to walk in the light? Is it sinless perfection? No. No, it's not. He goes on to explain what walking in the light is. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. We admit our own faults and failures, that we are, that we have sin. If we confess our sins, why do we have to confess our sins? God knows everything, right? He died for our sins, so why do we have to confess it, some people ask. Confession actually means uh, the idea that we are agreeing with. So when you confess your sins, you agree with God about your true nature. You agree that you did it, and then it's wrong. Now, how can you walk with God if you're in disagreement with Him? You must agree about the true nature of who you are and what you've done. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. So we need to walk in the light. Walk in the light. Which means, as we recognize our faults and failures, we agree with God and we admit with God. We ask his forgiveness and the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Okay. Can an Ethiopian change his skin color? Mm, not in the natural. Can a leopard change his spots? No. Not naturally. Ah. Uh, can a man change his ways? Yes, he can but only through Christ. Only through Christ.
Uh, my Jewish friend back east sent me this story. It's about two Catholic boys. I'll close with this. There were two Catholic boys, Timothy Murphy and Antonio Sicola, whose lives paralleled each other in amazing ways. The same year that Timothy was born in Ireland, Antonio was born in Italy. Italy. Faithfully attended parochial school from kindergarten through their senior year in high school. They took their vows to enter the priesthood early in college. And upon graduation, both became priests. Their careers came to amaze the world. It was generally acknowledged that Antonio Sicola was just a cut above Timothy Murphy in all respects. Their rise through the ranks of bishop, archbishop, cardinal, was swift to say the least. And the Catholic world knew that when the present pope died, one of them would become the new pope. In time, the pope did die. The College of Cardinals went to work, and they chose one of those two men. Everyone was surprised to learn that Timothy Murphy had been elected the pope. Antonio Socola was surprised. He was devastated. He went to the cardinals to ask, why? Why this? After a long silence, the old cardinal took pity on the bewildered man and rose to reply. He said, we knew you were better of the two, but we just could not bear the thought of the leader of the Roman Catholic Church being called Pope Sicola. That's a silly story. <laughs> now, here's the, here's the catch. <clears throat> here's the catch. It doesn't make any difference what your name is or your nationality. That is not the secret to a successful spiritual life. The secret to a successful spiritual life is appropriating Jesus Christ as Lord, Jesus Christ as Lord, and letting his Holy Spirit empower you that you might be able to what? Walk in the light. And when we turn from that, we're like that useless rag that was pulled out from the river. Useless rag that's pulled out from the river. Life is found in Christ and his strength and his ability to give us the ability to say, I am going to walk in the light with Jesus. I pray that would be true for each one of us. Let's pray. Father, heavy word this morning, but so truthful from the lips of Jeremiah. He lived in a very difficult age in a time when it was difficult for the people of God. We live in a difficult age, a time of compromise, a time when it seems like uh, our whole society is turning against all that we've believed for many years. And the lip service that the Americans gave to God for many years has been shown to be, at this time, now a sham. Lord Jesus, help our lives not to be wasted, useful lives, useless lives, but useful for you, giving glory and praise to the Savior who died for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.